businesses in Boakop have left the area. Some because of the Group Heirs Act, some because of gentrification. But you can still visit Boakop on any given day, pick up a dozen fresh casistas, freshly fried samosas, or any other tasty Cape Malay delicacy. People come for the colorful houses, but they always come back for the food. Maybe even more than its lengthy history and unique culture, Boakop is associated with its thriving trade and the trusted work ethic of its people. Back in the day, the area was filled with tailors, carpenters, barbers, leathersmiths. Most have moved, disappeared, but some still remain. All the way like we puka. All eyes on me like I'm Tupac. I'm leading my people like Musa. Everyone saying saluta. I was rolling with them killers, feeling like a Michael Colleyani. You were sleeping with the fishes, we was eating curry and biryani. In puka. 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 All the way like puka. All the way like puka. All the way like puka. You're listening to the story of Boakop, a three-part series where we'll investigate some of its history, unravel a couple of myths, and try and discover the future of this iconic area on the slopes of Signal Hill in Cape Town, formerly known as the Cape Malay Quarter. In part one, we discuss Boakop's history. We'll take a look at the original inhabitants of the Boakop, who probably aren't exactly who you expect, and find answers to the thorny questions of how the Boakop survived apartheid, demolitions, and why those houses are painted in bright colors. Part two will focus on the legacy businesses of Boakop, how some have died and others have survived. We'll speak to the owners of stores like Roxo Leather and Atlas Trading Company. And in part three, we'll talk about Boakop's heritage, status, gentrification, and try and determine the impact of these important changes for locals. This is part two, the businesses of Boakop. I'm Haji Mohamed Daji. I'm Rebecca Davis. And we're your hosts. So there are a couple of businesses in the Boakop that have been there for ages. I mean, within the living history of old Cape Townians. As old as Moses. As old as Moses. A lot of them have shut down and moved because of the rise in rates and developers buying buildings. But those who actually own the property have had a better chance of staying. Haji decided to pay the store owners a visit and find out how, in the face of change, these businesses have remained the same. Here's Haji. It's an overcast day when I pop into Roxel's shoe and luggage store in Bokar. I called the day before to make an appointment with Mr. Jagger, the owner. And I was told he only comes in at once, so I made sure I was on time. I have a lot of uncles who are shop owners, so I know punctuality is key, and I knew better than to be late. It turns out I was a bit too early, though, and I was told Mr. Jagger was running late himself. His son invited me to sit inside, and I have to admit the old-school footstool looked comfy and the thought of resting my feet and lounging in the store admiring the American shoes in the display cabinets did cross my mind. But I decided against it. The thought of those awkward silences trumped by my anticipated lounging session. So I ran across the road to Rose Street Corner Cafe to get a Coke instead, in a glass bottle. You're saying that like it's hugely significant, a glass bottle. Beck, if you grow up in one of these areas, you know that a glass bottle is an important detail. Have you ever had one from a glass bottle? I mean, certainly. <laughs> it, it tastes different, doesn't it? Like, it tastes old, but not bad old. It tastes good old, like quality old, days of your old. Like sipping from the fountain of the ancient. Exactly, as opposed to the fountain of youth. Okay, so she's out there on the corner sipping her ancient nostalgic Coke, and here's what happens next. This corner is so... Nostalgic, You know, I can almost see the inhabitants from decades past 
standing on the same corner smoking their Lucy's, chatting to neighbors about their own businesses, the youth possibly getting up to no good. Everyone is dressed to the nines in stovepipe pants and tops and hats, probably purchased from Mr. Jugger himself. And I still have a minute or two to kill, so I walk back across the road and sit on the pavement for a while. Two men rolled a trolley down a cobbled road with folded up cardboard boxes for recycling. And the sound of the wheels and the stones were, to me, no different from the carts that were pulled up and down years ago. The streets were obviously laid by slaves and they, you know, they used leftover hardware and supplies from the Dutch ships. Kids were hanging off the balconies next to me, still in their school clothes. The laces were undone, shirts untucked, and every now and then one of them would run to the cafe for lollipops, spooky strips, and jive cool drinks. But I also noticed how much had changed. When I was a child and I visited this place for the first time, it was like walking into this wonderful romantic capsule of the past. And now when I looked around, a lot was different. The modernity almost left a bitter taste in my mouth, and just when the thirst for the past left my mouth a bit too dry, I walked into Roxall to meet Mr. Jagger. Mr. Jagger is a small and stature kind of man. He strikes me as quite reserved. He talks to me the way a grandfather would in slow, steady sentences to make sure I understand. He's careful with his words, almost hesitant, but he means what he says, and he tells me a bit more about the store. The name of the business is Roxall, and uh, it used to be Roxall Shoe Repairs and Shoe Store, then we separated the business. Uh, half of it went to my brother, and he does the. He's known as Roxol Shoe Repairs, and I've taken over the business as Roxol Shoe Store and Luggage. So all of this is happening in his shop now. Exactly, we're sitting on those chairs I mentioned before. You know the ones that people used to fit shoes. Mm. My phone's recording from the footstool, and the store's really quiet. Mr. Jagger's son is standing behind the counter, shuffling about. He's busy with admin. And the walls and desks are full with paperwork, and every now and then the phone rings. There's no customers. None so far. That seems weird. You know, Mr. Jagger tells me that the whole reason his grandfather came here is because employment opportunities were so good. There was a lot of work. There was a lot of people, and in the past things were quite busy compared to now. My dada, which is my grandfather, the picture you see on the left-hand side. That is my grandfather who came here in 1895. They never knew the language, and yet they made a go of life. And uh, friends of his called him here to Cape Town. He said, "You come here and uh, let's work together, and uh, you can go and collect the shoe repairs and." We'll do the repairs together. We can then go and deliver the shoe repairs. We can make a success of life, and uh, uh, we can also support your family. It was really and truly, if it isn't through Grandpa, then we wouldn't have been here too. Okay, so just just so I have this straight, Mr. Jaga's grandfather came to Cape Town independently, not. As an indentured labourer, not as a slave. That's right. His friends just hollered, and I guess he was on the next boat out. So, Mr. Jagger, as we know, his ancestors hail from India. His grandfather grew up in a small village called Badali, close to Surat. The little village borders the Purna River, and that feeds the Arabian Sea. Badali still remains tiny. The latest census reports that it has a population of only 2,043, with 625 houses. Fun fact. It's the women in Budali who have acquired a higher literacy rate, but in the 1800s, men remained the ones privileged enough to travel. 
get an education and seek opportunities. And that's exactly what his grandfather did. And he kind of worked his way up until he became the store's owner. And in the past, right, what made independent stores like these so successful is obviously that there weren't any shopping malls, right? It's, you know, Cape Town, early 20th century. There's no Golden Acre or Garden Centre. Yeah, you can't go in and buy everything you need in, in one place. So places like Roxol provided a much-needed service in the community. Mr. Jagger also offered lay-bys, you know, so those who couldn't afford to pay upfront payments would do it later, and the whole thing operated on a trust system. Can you imagine walking into a Woolies for a pair of sliders and asking them to write your name down without a telephone number in a full scrapbook book with the total amount you owe them and just have them trust you'll be back weekly with, with a little bit of money to add to the pot? <laughs> no. no, I cannot imagine that. And furthermore, I can't imagine calling them and saying, I'll be on Friday after Mars, can you come and get your two rands then? You know, and getting like a really warm response from them. A different time indeed. And even though these times are quieter, the same trade of trust applies because Mr. Jugger says he still has the odd old customer, travels into the town from Athlone or Islands to purchase a pair of bass loafers. The reason they're not in Boakop anymore, these people, is because Mr. Jugger refers to the group area's exodus, which obviously means a lot of them left. Right up to about uh, 40, 45 years ago, we used to have a very, very striving business selling shoes uh, to the community. And uh, people used to, they would want to buy it on tick and we used to give them on a weekly basis. And of course, some of them, they got so used to that. Uh, he said, will you come and collect the money on a Friday and Saturday? We should do that as well. What does he mean when he says buy on tick? That's just an old school way of saying buying something on account as you would today. It's not like swapping goods for drugs or anything. <laughs> okay. So, here we are listening to Mr. Jaga talk to you about business in the 1940s. And that sounds like a roaring good time. But what about now? I actually asked him that. The whole time I was there, customers didn't really walk in. But like I said, you know, he mentioned old customers still make their way to Boerkopf for purchases. But he's really firm on the fact that the Group Areas Act affected his business a lot because people just moved away. Yeah, see, that's that's interesting because in the first episode of the series, we dealt with this misconception that the Group Areas Act didn't affect Boerkopf at all. And here we have further evidence that actually, you know, it had this kind of seismic effect on the area. Exactly. And a lot of answers we get when we ask that question center around businesses, skilled laborers, that sort of thing. You know, one of the stories I heard a lot when I was researching the history of the Boer Cup is the idea that the apartheid government also kind of left the area alone because the people of Boer Cup provided such valuable services to the people of central Cape Town in terms of, you know, Boer Cup women acting as the tailors for National Party ministers' wives and that kind of thing, which is an interesting explanation as well. But as we heard, not the whole story. It isn't the whole story. It isn't altogether untrue. But the narrative that Boer Cup remained completely untouched by the Group Areas Act is a myth, which we've discussed in episode one. The area did suffer the consequences as much as any other community of colour. In fact, a more appropriate way to describe it would be to say that Boerkop underwent a cultural cleansing during the Group Areas Act, with only those classified as Cape Malay allowed to remain, and all other inhabitants were sent elsewhere. Here's Mr. Jaga. From the 40s, 50s onwards, uh, when the people were moved from the area, and uh, those that were fortunate, they remained but then, of course, they wanted to move out the uh, African people who used to be in the city area as well. There used to be white people also staying in the area. 
and uh, they managed to get them out of the area. And also, uh, uh, there was a very big population of Indians. But they tried to get us out from here, uh, and um, we, together with some other business uh, people in the area, we managed to uh, secure ourselves in this respect. We went to the department and told them, look, uh, this is our livelihood. You can't uproot us as far as our livelihood is concerned. And uh, he said, well, uh, in that case, then you'll have to stay on an, uh, on permit. And of course, uh, we had every, sec uh, every second year, third year, we had to go and apply for a permit. And they used to give a grant us permit. And uh, of course, by granting permit, the chaps at the department, they said, oh, you've got a very nice business. And uh, my family needs shoes. And they used to, then we used to uh, have no alternative, but to also give them something in return. And, uh, you know, it was something that uh, we were forced to, uh, in a way, we were forced to do that. Whoa, so kind of like the protection system of the Godfather. Exactly. Or any off-the-rack mob movie you might have seen. The mafia goes around to businesses, they ask for free goods or a portion of profit because they allow the businesses to operate in a certain area. Without it, would permits be retracted as punishment? Who knows? Mm. Mr. Jagger said he never took the chance. Mm. He wouldn't. Like you mentioned, his livelihood depended on the store and his personal residence still remained unsafe. So in this way through this protection racket, whatever you want to call it, he managed to keep his business in the book up. But what about his personal living conditions? Unfortunately, at the time, there were obviously no permits for homes. So he did end up moving his family to Rylands, the designated Indian area, next to other Cape Flats areas like Athlone and Gatesville. But being the resourceful businessman he is, he managed to move his family back to the book up in the 80s. I used to stay in Rylands right up till uh, 1982. And so the, the groupers, they virtually wanted me out from here. Yes. Uh, we moved to Rylands. But the eye was, my eye was always to be in town for the simple reason. It was near my business. It was, uh, you know, this daily traveling through right. heavy traffic and so on. So I managed to secure a piece of ground in the Boer Cup. And uh, during group areas time, I managed to both Right. Uh, a residence for, for myself and right. for, the, for my family. Nominee, I, I had 49% uh, share and right. uh, the nominee had 51% share. Okay. So it was a risk. So Mr. Jaga wasn't alone in this, right? There were a lot of these kind of, you know, arrangements during apartheid. White people standing as nominees for people of colour or posing as owners of businesses actually owned by people of colour. 100% Beck. I once did an interview actually with Yogi's Barber, you know, down the road on yeah, Corn of yeah, Whale yeah. and Dorf Street. And he told me the reason his dad was able to purchase the property is because he had a deal with a white Jewish man who bought the shop under his own name so no one really knew it was owned by a person of colour. So that kind of explains how an Indian family managed to stay in Burkhub. But I was curious to know, having discovered that there were a lot of misconceptions about how the Burkhub survived apartheid, I wanted to know what Mr. Jaga's opinion is on why Cape Malay people weren't made to leave Burkhub. Well, I asked him. Here he is. In the 40s, there was a uh, Malay councillor 
and uh, he had a very strong hold in the council. And uh, together with the, all the other Malay people here, they managed to secure this Bokap area as a Malay area. Mm. And uh, that was because it was uh, something where they had a unity with the Malay people. The councillor had quite a bit of pull in the council and they managed to secure the area. That's interesting because when you and I looked into this, we could not find the name of this alleged Counselor. And Mr. Jagger himself couldn't even remember the name. The story definitely sounds like one of those folk tales that communities spread when they search for answers, but they don't find it. Yeah, and there definitely seem to be a lot of those kind of stories swirling around the Burkhart. But we, we looked into some of that in our first episode. So if you missed that, go have a listen. So, post-apartheid South Africa experiences... A tourism boom. Houses painted in bright colours. Burkhap remains, you know, still this wonderful enclave of culture and tradition. But business changes as well. Yeah, so a lot of hotels start coming up, tourists start to visit. Uh, and because over the years with all the apartheid laws, so many people moved away, businesses like Roxol now start to make their money from foreign clientele. We do have, uh, like you said, you know, people who once um, quality stuff. They will still come here, and those yes. are families that will come from possibly, you know, they may make a, a trip once in a while, but they, when they come, they do buy. And uh, uh, they would want to buy quality stuff. Our businesses dramatically changed, and of course, uh, we had to change with time, and uh, it was a switch over from uh, 100%. Uh, Malay area, so-called Malay coloured area, uh, coloured business to a completely, we are running virtually about 90% white support and the support is from, uh, due to, we've got hotels around here, we've come to know, people's come to know of the type of business we have, the type of shoes we sell. So that seems, you know, pretty positive in a way, at least in terms of Mr. Jaga's business. He's still making money. His business is still kind of booming, even though there are changes in who are his customers. But not everyone has been so lucky, right? The residents, for some of the residents at least, book cop history seems to be kind of repeating itself. Exactly. And, and not everyone is as keen on the tourists as Mr. Jaga. Here's a clip from the book cop museum by film director Munir Parker. As young kids, we would gather on the corner, um, hanging out. These are some of the things that shaped you as a person. You grew up with a sense of community. You grew up with um, a sense of camaraderie because of the friends that you had around you. Uh, And it was just an amazing experience. There was a very strong uh, sense of identity. We had, I mean, madrasa. Uh, every day, day um, was about our identity that we are Muslim first and foremost. Um, we had Eid and, and Eid. They were the foods that we eat, that we ate, and these foods were associated with what was known as Malay culture, Malay cuisine. This the area that I grew up in um, is called the Malay Quarter. And growing up, 
you'd be standing on the corners and there'd be these tourists coming through and I was on display every day of my life on the corner where I stood and it's it's a joke up until today when we are in uh, standing on the corner with a group of my friends the two of us comes past I would be the one that would say and on your left are the wild Malays hanging out on the corner and always we, we, we'd be making fun of um, the fact that there were these tour buses coming through Um, you had Christian, Muslim, Indian, and Indian Hindu kind of thing. It's predominantly a Muslim area. Today in the world we have um, all these different cultures, we have religions at war with each other. When we grew up there was a tolerance for religion. I attended a Christian school, St. Paul's. I went to church every single day and we had to recite the Our Father. We had Bible class in the morning. In the afternoon when I left school, I had to go to Madrasa, which is the Muslim school. So from three until five in the afternoon, I would be learning about Islam, you know, and every the next morning I'd be learning about Christianity. And that is what I grew up with. Yeah, I can imagine it's super weird to grow up in an area where every day these tourists are just snapping you as if you're exhibits in a, a weird living tableau or something. Work up on. Exactly. And then over and above this, there's the G word, the gentrification problem, right? Right. And Mr. Jug and I spoke about gentrification. And, you know, now we know that Borkop has been granted heritage status, which means that any new developments in the area won't be allowed. And there'll be a lot more red tape if they are allowed to get through before they can change anything. And we'll chat more about this in the third episode of the series. But the new status doesn't protect the area from development contracts that have already been passed. Right. So, for example, block developers, um, the ones the residents have been protesting against, are still allowed to continue building. And while moving forward, the residents will hopefully be offered some protection. The gentrification of the past has still had its fair share of consequences. And I asked Mr. Jagger about this. You know, it is a rather very sad situation. When I say sad situation, I, to, uh, to a certain extent, I agree with them because uh, uh, when the new projects comes up, uh, the rates goes up. And when the rates goes up, uh, each and every one falls in that same sort of a category because then, you know, it makes no difference whether you can afford it or you can't afford it, so you fall in that same category. Unfortunately, uh, I, I must agree that, uh, you know, there the council should do something in that direction and uh, some sort of a relief should be given especially to the ones that can't afford and the ones that can stay in the area for a long, long time. It's also kind of noteworthy that many of the new businesses seem to have been wiped clean of Cape Malay culture. And I know it's kind of a complex subject to discuss culture in a fixed way, but I was in the book up the other day. You know, there's a new ice cream store where you can buy vegan sorbet, it's obviously double the price you'd pay for a Gatti's lolly at the cafe. And the sign inside the ice cream store says, there's nothing newer than old-fashioned food, which struck me as really kind of ironic. And next to that bag, there's the local design cooperative. It claims to highlight local talent, but the talent on display is largely the work of established hip brands, with few workup roots on display. One of those few? 
a limited edition architectural illustration of the Burkhardt Museum for a mere 350 rand. Mr. Jagger mentioned that that same block used to house Palmo Meat Market, who served the area for over 60 years. Well, there was a, a, a very thriving business also right on the corner where you mentioned the ice cream shop. There used to be a butcher shop there. And this butcher shop, uh, uh, known as Palmo Meat, they were also in that, uh, on that spot for many, many years. Unfortunately, uh, the property owners, they wanted to develop it and uh, he had to move out and he's now in Woodstock. So this butchery didn't close down because they ran out of business or because the community didn't support them? No, it, it was the opposite, in fact. They had a really fruitful business until their last day in December 2018. But the building was sold to developers and they couldn't stay anymore. And it's not just businesses who have suffered displacement. Residents have as well. I have a neighbour here, just about two or three doors away. He managed to sell his property for a reasonably good price. And he said, look, I, I've been pestered uh, to move out and it, my wife is no more and I am alone. But my daughter staying with me and it, it is a little bit of a difficult uh, situation. I uh, rather would like to move out of the area. I'm getting a good price and I can live on the interest and uh, I can assist my daughter as well you know, where she stays in um, Athlon area. As a matter of fact, he was here this morning. The, the only problem is you know, once you leave the area, if you don't have transport, it means yeah, you've got to sacrifice a lot of time to come to town and do your shopping or see your friends or, you know, keep in touch with your old contacts. It seems like it's kind of a catch-22 because while these people have to leave their history and communities behind, which is obviously heart-wrenching, in the case of Mr. Jaga's neighbor, it sounds like the move is also potentially profitable. And that's actually a story we don't often hear about. The very real incentives that there must be for Burkhardt residents to sell up. But it is a hard thing to navigate. And unfortunately, not everyone is in a position to stay. They just can't afford the rates. You know, with businesses, if they're still profitable, there are more advantages to staying. It's how they make a living. And Mr. Jaga himself is sure that he won't sell. I've had only one... Uh a uh, person from a uh, Chinese guy, he came, I want to buy your property, I want to buy your property. I'm, I'm sorry, my friend, it's not for sale. Yeah. You have to be thinking on a long term. You have children and this is where your bread and butter is, then you have to give it a very good thought. You can't just, uh, for the money's sake, you can't just sell up. If you sell up, uh, uh, I've got uh, my wife, I've got my children, and uh, my son is in the business with me. I've got another son who's also in, he's runs his business from the same premises. He's an orthotist, and he occupies eight rooms in this building. And, uh, you know, it's so to say, you give it a very good, good thought. What about the other so-called legacy businesses, the ones that have been there forever? Do they feel the same? Another legacy business is Atlas Trading Company. And I spoke to them and they adamant that they won't move either. They're actually one of the companies that applied for the permit to stay during apartheid at the same time as Roxall. I spoke to the director of the company. My name is Abdul Wahab Ahmed. I am 70 years old. 
and I'm the director of Atlas Trading Company, 104 Whale Street, Up. So this business is not quite as old as Roxall. No, it isn't as old as Roxall. It was started by Mr. Ahmed's father and uncle, and Mr. Ahmed is only the second generation to take over the business. And he told me a bit about the Burkhardt back then. The atmosphere in a Burkhardt, it is indescribable at the time. You know, as children, we used to grow up, and as a childhood, play dominoes. We used to play kerem, which is known as mini pool on the square table. Keneki, uh, which is flipping, hitting, and catching pieces of wood, and bok bok, which is leapfrog with a twist. We played all types of games. I mean, he does make it sound kind of dreamy. You can hear the nostalgia in his voice there. What does he think about the difference in the atmosphere today from these new businesses moving in and the rest of it? Well, he admits that... It is changing to a bit. I think he didn't want to go into how because it's kind of obvious. But he did say that he's had conversations with white business owners and they've mentioned they appreciate the way Burkhop has managed to keep the culture alive. But in Mr. Ahmed's case, the more things change, the more they say the same, and he shall not be moved. For me, moving out of the Burkhop, that will never happen. You've been listening to the story of Burkhop. This is part two of a three-part series. Other episodes are available on lifepodcast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, part three of the series, where we'll take a deeper look at gentrification and examine whether there are any advantages to urban developments in low-cost housing areas for locals. The story of Burkamp is brought to you by EWN with sound engineering and editing by Gavin Dazel, presented and produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and Rebecca Davis. Our thanks to Beat Bangers featuring Youngster CPT for the use of the song Burkarp, available wherever you get your music.